the movie was finished in 71. We finally got a distributor in 73. Are you Cars, freaking out for two when, years? When Cars, oh yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on... John Landis in part one of our brand new six episode series called the John Landis tapes in which the director of such classics as Animal House, Coming to America, The Blues Brothers, Michael Jackson's Thriller Video, and much, much more gives up the goods about his films and shares priceless behind-the-scenes anecdotes. And we're here with today's co-host, Joe Kennedy, as well as the man himself, my friend, John Landis. In the next hour, we'll learn about the torrent of classic European films on which John worked in every possible capacity in the 1960s, his experiences attending both the Tammy Show and Monterey Pop, and finally, the real story behind the making of his first feature film, Schlock, and the unexpected support from a truly massive celebrity that wound up kickstarting his career. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums. Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep-dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all. The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly, to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Be sure to follow along with us chronologically as we go. The link to our legendary playlist is right there in the show notes. Coming up, we've got the remaining two volumes in our We Are Stardust, We Are Over series, the Keith Hartley Band and Quill, and much, much more. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and click follow. And get ready to meet your new friends. They're all kicking it right now in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, great artist and track recommendations, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and show topic decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for your next collaborator, and much more. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And away we go then. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different, so settle in and prepare yourselves for a career-long overview of John Landis's own output. Discography presents Filmography. Welcome to a very special episode, The John Landis Story. 
Our guest today is known for his groundbreaking work in multiple genres, including comedy, horror, and long-form video. He's directed about 25 films, including a 10-year streak that almost nobody in film history has equaled, in my objective opinion. His work includes Animal House, The Blues Brothers, Michael Jackson's thriller video, Coming to America, and Into the Night. I love him, as I'm quite sure you will too. Ladies and gentlemen, John Levitsky, a.k.a. John Landis. Now you have to change that. What? To, I was never John Levitsky. What the hell's that then? I thought that was your goddamn name when you were born. No. <laughs> What's John Levitsky? There is no John Levitsky. Tell me about the, the what is John Levitsky? Levitsky was my great, great grandparents' name. Okay. All right. But uh, my grandfather changed it. No, okay. my great grandfather changed it so that my grandfather could get into law school. You needed a Goyish name to get into. There was a Jew quota at the time. <laughs> no, so that, that's you, the truth. You were actually, okay, there's a bunch of stuff that a lot of people who know your work or know you uh, know very well about you, which is that you are a Chicago guy, born in Chicago, but at four months old, you went out to, uh, to L.A., uh, with your dad, Marshall, your mom, Shirley. Is that correct? I, I was under one, okay. but I don't know. I couldn't vouch for four months. <laughs> okay, now your mom, you made her uh, even more mythological than you because the, a lot of people don't know that joke in Airplane, which is le- which is truly a legendary joke, is was sort of a gift to your mom, was it not? You want to tell us about that? My mother's name was Shirley, and we always would say, you know, that whole Shirley gag airplane is something we did with my mother forever. In fact, years later when she broke her hip and she walked with a walker, we would say, here she comes, slowly but surely. (laughs) (laughs) Shirley, you can't be serious. Yes, I am. Don't call me Shirley. Just to rewind for a second before we delve into uh, every single detail about your existence thus far, uh, you and I... I should clarify, I didn't make Airplane. That was made by Jerry, David, and Jim. Right, but uh, it it is one of the most famous jokes from the movie, and most quoted, uh, very possibly. So... Full disclosure, you and I know each other. We met and actually started talking in 2003. I reached out to you because uh, the film I was making at the time, Zombie Honeymoon, I had a feeling that you would respond to it. And I got to say, you were a true mensch. I mean, you didn't have to take, uh, I faxed a letter to your manager. You didn't have to call me. You called me the next day. To my lawyer. I've never, to your lawyer, I've whatever. I've never had a manager. Whomever it was. This is why they called me mythological. <laughs> so you helped me along the way. You got me my first distribution offer through uh, Blue Underground and Bill Lustig. Then you and I actually went to Italy to the Torino Film Festival. And, you know, you really helped me out along the way plus you know just having you as a mentor figure along the way uh, when the chips were down and filmmaking is a certainly an up and down process uh, it really helped me through thank you and moving right along now you're now in LA Uh, you see seventh voyage of of Sinbad this is the big inspiration for you you decide to become a filmmaker the first step along the way is becoming a, a male boy at 20th Century Fox is that correct I just wanted to be near production to, to get anywhere near making movies and the only way I, the only job I could get was a male boy at, 
at Fox. So did you see this as your way in, or you just kind of wanted to be uh, on the periphery, so to speak? There's no way in. I mean, what what's interesting is when people talk about my career, it always sounds like the military. You always hear he worked his way up from the. There's no working your way up. No, you zigzagged all. No, over no, the no. Place. But there is. It's not a. It's. It doesn't work like that. I mean, how do you become a director? Well, somehow there's the money for you to direct. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. There's no steps. Like if you wanted to be a plumber, you know that you go and you learn. You learn a trade. A trade, Mm -hmm. right. If you want to be a doctor, you learn the trade. If you want to be a filmmaker, there is no right or wrong way to learn the skills or the craft. I learned by fucking up so bad. Well, that's how people learn. That's a way. Yeah, that's like how people really learn bad. everything. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, you know, like you, I, I butted heads with schools, so I was suspended from college and and just went and made a feature called Jesus Two, partially financed with bar mitzvah money, also partially financed by forty thousand dollars on credit cards, and we had to shut down production in the middle. I know what not to do. You know what I mean? So during this time, I just wanted to be near actual production to learn everything I could and over the years I've there's you can't do what I did now really because there was production I went to Europe on a movie and I was able to there was what was called the spaghetti boom in Spain at the time. before we get there well now, no I was just saying I was able to get on all kinds of movies American British French Spanish German Italian I have done every job on a film except hair. <laughs> and that's how I sort of learned the craft. That's incredible to me because you were very well coiffed. Well, was that the inspiration to drop out of high school? Was I know what I want to do. It's just time to start doing it. And looking back, yeah. you still feel the same way about that decision. Well, I'm, I'm the classic bad example because I, one, I'm sure that the diagnosis didn't exist then. But I'm sure I was ADHD. Um, you know, I used to get bizarre grades. I would get A's in history and A's in English and F's in math. I was dread. I still am dreadful at anything that involves math. Um, so one of the things about music that fascinates me is when I worked with uh, film composers is when I really realized, wait a minute, music is math. Yeah, they're very closely related. Yeah, we're like, holy shit. Um, No wonder I'm not a musician. (laughs) But interestingly enough, I've been told by a lot of amazing people that I'm, you know, privileged to have worked with Jerry Goldsmith, Elmer Bernstein, um, Peter Bernstein, I'm trying to think, I mean, Nile Rodgers, so many great composers. And they've all told me that I have perfect rhythm. And I think, and I don't know what that is, but what's interesting about that is it does help because even rhythm is math. And editing. Editing is math. Well, I mean, if you can't can't strip away what you're seeing and just feel the organic underlying rhythm of the scene, then you're... Yes, but I wouldn't say editing is math. It can be. You can cut. Edgar Wright, famously, if you look at his movies, he's... Very much cutting the music. I mean, uh, Baby Driver. Baby Driver. Yeah. But if you see uh, his new one, Last so, Night in Soho, there's a couple of sequences in the first half that are basically musical numbers, but they're remarkable. 
in how they're shot and assembled. And that's all math, really. But I could never approach it that way because if I'd get intimidated, I could just do it. It's interesting. It's like when I'm on a film set, I know the sight lines. I mean, I really know stuff that I just have in my head. Like I'm always telling art directors and production designers, build me a model of the set. Because if you show me a drawing, I can't figure it out. Right. right. <laughs> you, know? Mm-hmm. you know what's interesting? I never, uh, sight lines were always a pain in the ass to me. Oh, I've worked lines. on so many films where there are arguments between the operator and the cameraman and the continuity person. <laughs> it's like, no, he looks that way. No, right, he looks right. that way. I hate and that. I remember twice, I've made a lot of movies, I've, I've shot a lot of footage, but uh, in all kinds of commercials, whatever it is, but twice, once on Blues Brothers. I think once on trading places but where nobody on the crew agreed where that car where was go. looking. <laughs> so we ended up shooting it twice <laughs> and then figuring it out in the cutting room because uh, trading in the Blues Brothers is a shot where the car comes off the freeway. It's during um, Soothe Me, the Sam and Dave. There's a lot of that movie that was designed around the needle drop that's playing at the mm. time. It was just. I just couldn't. It was the arm across an exit ramp as the car is coming off. We couldn't figure it out. Like, wait, does it go this way? <laughs> and finally, we let's shoot it both ways. So, L- L.A. in the '60s, it seems like it had much more small town kind of feel than, than Westwood Village did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about L.A., but the thing about L.A. Um, see, I like Randy. You love this town, correct? like Randy Newman. I love L.A. I love this town too. Yeah, it's deeply crazy and completely unique, and that I did not realize until I traveled. And I like traveling. My wife and I are like great tourists, and we go everywhere. And now that you're being feted internationally, it's just a natural fit. You know, when I'm being honored at a festival, it's always where is it and when is it. It's mm-hmm. basically about free travel. Yeah. Um, oh no, then nah. You know, or there nah. It's how I get tickets to Europe or tickets to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in any case, my friend Paul Bartel was a director. Love Paul Bartel. Paul's, you were in Eating Raul, were you not? I am briefly, but yeah. I, you know, Eating Raul, I forgot what picture, but we gave, I, it was a studio picture, so the film that he shot, Eating Raul, was paid for by that studio. <laughs> we ordered it and gave it to Paul. I love that movie. He was so, a wonderful guy. So, okay. Anyway, my point was, he spent years just traveling, going to film festivals all over. Where's Paul? San Paolo. You know, where's Paul? <laughs> Ethiopia. Where's Paul? <laughs> Venice. You know, he just went to film festivals. It, it's very much like my dear friend and hero, Ray Harryhausen. After he retired, Ray spent a good 15 years, maybe 20, just being feted. Yeah, it's a good golden parachute. Just kind of being asking. feted, yeah. just traveling and being feted and I thought good for him so many gift baskets a little nicer than that <laughs> alright so you're 14 years old okay and you oh, go to this show called the Tammy show oh okay alright so there's a, a famous movie the Tammy show uh, and you're in the goddamn movie so well no 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 I, I'm in the audience you see. you're in the movie aren't you not uh, you can see me if yeah. you know where to look but it doesn't matter <laughs> I'm just one other little screaming kid but the thing about the Tammy show was my I went to Emerson Junior High which was LA public school um, right behind the Mormon temple is Emerson still there and because of the area 
it was in, which includes Bel Air and Westwood. Um, a lot of industry kids were there. It was a very strange school because we had uh, black kids bust in from Watts. We had mostly white. It was about a. It's about forty-five percent white, about twenty percent black, and twenty percent Hispanic. It was actually a good mix of kids. Who were, who were you most excited to see? I'm well, guessing no, it was no, James I didn't, wasn't excited to see them then. But like in my class was David Cassidy, you know, and uh, Bonnie Raitt was the great ahead of me. My sisters, who also went to Emerson, they went on to uni, the high school. I did not, but. My sister was in the same class with Natalie Cole and Liza Minnelli. Um, and I remember I never met her or saw her, but my mother being so excited when Judy Garland came to pick up Liza and spent the night. They were talking about she was probably 14, you know. Mm-hmm. My mother was like, Judy Garland's outside. When you went to the show, do you remember? Who- well, I was going to say, it, 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 there were all these really talented kids in my school. Um, there was one boy named Gene Rudolph, who was a real, you know, like Gavon, I mean, a real, <laughs> in gym, he was the first guy I ever saw who had hair on his balls, you know. It was, <laughs> it was like, whoa! You know? His big brother was Johnny Rivers. And we all went to see Johnny Rivers at the Whiskey A Go-Go, singing Secret Agent Man. Anyway, somebody in Emerson, their dad, was involved in producing the Tammy Show, which was Teenage America Music International. And it was shot, they came up with some silly word for it, but it was shot. Uh, yeah, it was like uh, something vision. Something, yes, vision. Uh, some, something like a but le- it was, electrovision. Or yeah, like it that. was shot to be projected in theaters. And something went wrong, and they ended up having 16 millimeter cameras too, to make you know kinescopes if they had to. But it, all I know is they they did shoot the show, and it's directed by the same guy who directed the famous Elvis special. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the show itself? Ah, uh, very well. What I who remember, do you remember most? What I remember most was James Brown. Right. But also, what I remember was the idea. That you had, you know, Marvin Gaye, Chuck Berry, the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean, Diana Ross, uh, and the Supremes. You had and the Stones, legendary Rolling Stones, and shakily. Well, I wait, wait. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. It was an amazing. Jan and Dean, we're on there. Jan and Dean were the host. You had Leslie uh, Gore. Well, that was the point of all those acts. The biggest star. Was Leslie Gore? Yeah, she was really? hot. She was hot right at that she time. She was that the time, really? biggest yeah. star. And in fact, if you look at the Tammy Show, you see her singing and all those people behind her dancing. You know, and she was the number one star, which was kind of amazing. I but, wonder if our friend Don Randy was in the band on that show because the, the well band is um, all Wrecking Crew. It's Hal the Wrecking Blaine. Crew. It's Hal Blaine and, and you know Tommy who Tedesco. the go, one of the Go Go Girls is Tony Basil, and uh, one of the uh, Go Go Girls is Terry Gar. Oh, man. Nice, um, nice. See, but I was, love this town. So, I was so younger than them, but the the show was very exciting. They did it twice. They cut between shows, but one audience is like the seventh and eighth grade, and one audience is like the eighth and ninth grade. <laughs> I hadn't seen it in a while, and I watched some of it last night. And, it's um, the best footage of James Brown performing. Yeah, live. that's amazing. It's, it's, it's the great. Chuck, yeah. The Chuck Berry footage is pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty pretty like the raw, Stone like, stuff is pretty limp. I mean, it's actually, sounded pretty good to me. Well, well you could tell that of, story. I mean, after watching James Brown, that's it's just the funny. story. Mick Jagger tells a funny story about it, but 
he insisted that they be the ending act, the closing act. And James Brown said, excuse me, uh, I'm the closing act. So they had a this the director, I can't think of his name, I'm embarrassed. But he called them all together and he said, look, you put me in this weird position. You're both demanding to be the closing act. And James famously looked at Mick Jagger and said, oh, this is, uh, okay, let him be the closing act. <laughs> and then James comes out and just blows Murders the it. roof yeah. off. Yeah. And then after James Brown, the Rolling Stones, now they were big stars because of Ed Sullivan. We knew who they were. But it was like hoodie skinny white boys. You know, it was like you know. You know what's interesting about you is that you kind of excuse yourself from being you know somebody who's had a profound effect on music. You kind of like move away from that a little bit. But the funny thing is, you're like a stone skipping over a pond because you hit all these. You got the Tammy Show, then you're at Monterey Pop. Oh, that no, I was extremely fortunate to be at Monterey. What's Pop. the story with Monterey Pop? Because you are the farthest fucking thing from a hippie I've ever met. I beg your pardon. No, my I, I was not a hippie, but I was hippie-ish. I had long hair. Was it your idea or a girl's idea to was go? It, no, I went with a boy. I went with a guy. Um, Did you paint your face? No. Um, what did you wear accoutrement-wise? Uh, what I in? always wear, I wore jeans and a shirt. Blazer? A blazer? <laughs> no. But I wasn't, I wasn't, a, I wasn't, a, full, I wasn't a, a real hippie. But most of the people there were not real hippies. It was still that. Right, right. When I saw the one hippie, con, I mean real hippie thing I went to that was totally hippie, was seeing the mamas and the papas at the Hollywood Bowl go, and that was the summer of love. That was '67. I remember that was that. August 18th, 1967. That was well, the day you saw. It. I took a girl named Kathy Zoitlin, and Zoitlin. It sounds like no, a Jerry she, Lewis thing. It was memorable for for a bunch of reasons. One, because the stench of marijuana, the wall of marijuana, like you got within a mile of the Hollywood Bowl, you were stoned, you know, and. We we go and the entire every seat in the Hollywood Bowl, Mama Cass had paid for a baby orchid to be on it, and everyone was blowing bubbles and you know incense and Hare Krishna and all this stuff. And the opening act, talk about hippie. The opening act was Scott McKenzie singing "If You're Going to San Francisco," Um, and then came a guy that no one. No, that had to be before Monterey Pop because I... It was after. It was two months after. But the Monterey Pop movie had not come out yet. That's okay, really because Jimi Hendrix came on and nobody knew who he was. And he started to play really loud um, the co- opening chords of Sgt. Pepper. Mm-hmm. And he's playing that and the audience just went, Boo! <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, they're all stoned. Second of all, it's, what the fuck? They're going, what is this? And they did. They just booed, and he played most of the song, and then he took his guitar off and just threw it high in the air, and walked off, and it smashed on the stage and made noise. And I remember very well the next day in the L.A. Times was a review of the concert, and it said Mr. Hendrix, uh, who was not received favorably, you know, threw his guitar in the air and walked off stage. I'm told normally he sets it on fire. <laughs> and I remember reading that going, what? 
See, that's why I'm interested because I saw him at Monterey. Right, I was going to ask if you had yeah. seen him. At Monterey I did. Pop, yeah. So in my head, I did. I have. I'm confused. And because- oddly, you had seen Mamas and Papas at Monterey Pop. So that was the summer of your obsession with the Mamas and no, the Papas. No, I, I don't know, but they, they were great. But the, the- I love the Mamas he, and the Papas. Now apparently, Hendrix also got poorly received at Monterey Pop because Mama Cass like lectured the audience. Well, like, no, at Hollywood Bowl. Oh, that was Hollywood Bowl. The okay. Hollywood Bowl. Oh, I see. So okay. the, the Mamas and the Papas come on, and Mama Cass started by saying, you people, and she scolded the audience. She said, this man's a genius, and you're going to regret this. And she was really stern. She was like wagging her finger. She was right. And she, of course yeah, she was right. right. Yeah. But the Monterey Pop CD, the film, uh, I think it's Pennebaker. Pen-a-baker. I forgot. It's Pennebaker. Pennebaker. He did a wonderful thing. He took the Jimi Hendrix set, but especially the Otis Redding set, and they're separate, they're whole acts. And the Otis Redding, that for me was life change. I never, he was, I've seen Sinatra, I work with Michael Jackson, I work with David Bowie, I've worked with everybody, and I've, I've seen a lot of great performers. Oh, that was one of the great shows I've ever seen, period. And ironically, it wasn't until I was shooting the Blues Brothers. Then I realized, wait a minute, Steve, didn't you write Dock of the Bay with Otis Redding? He goes, yeah. And I knew that Steve and Duck Dunn were the MGs for Booker T and the MGs. I knew they were house band at Stacks. Stacks, But I didn't really realize the depth of their, Mm -hmm. you know, record. And I realized they were in the band and I went back to look. I, I got the DVDs and I looked at them in Chicago. We were shooting to see, oh my God, look, there they are. So it changed your life. And then 13 years later, well, you're yeah, working with these guys. I work well to Steve. Steve is still out there. He just came out with a record. He's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Duck Dunn has passed, but Duck always had this pipe and it's a brilliant bass. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. There was a recording that we did of Peter Gunn and just listen to Duck. I mean, it's incredible. And when um, Henry Mancini told me that he made more money from that recording yeah. <laughs> than any other. But what's the Lennon, the McCart- the Beatles song where at the end of it, John goes, I've got blisters on That's me. a Helter Skelter. Yeah. Well, Ringo. because that's it's what, Ringo. When he, it's Ringo? Yeah. Yeah. I always thought it was Lennon. But what's amazing is, was Duck was that he's playing two different chords for four minutes, you know, and it's like, oh my God. Anyway, um, so he, Duck, yeah. you know, we were shooting at Hollywood on Universal on a stage, and it was really hot. And all of a sudden, Duck turns. You know, Duck was a good old boy. He turns and he goes, throw another log on the air conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so now it's 1968, and you become a... Uh, I saw Janis Joplin. I saw... I mean, at Monterey Pop. Monterey, Monterey Pop, Pop, I yeah. saw... Well, you saw The Association. You saw Buffalo remember. Springfield. You saw Moby them. Grape. I saw who? Moby, Moby Grape. Grape. I don't know if... Oh, I don't remember. The Who? Remember them? They were there. Yeah, The Who I remember because they smashed the shit out of me. <laughs> so, okay, so it's 1968, okay? Uh, give me some clarification here because... From what I see, for three years, you were uh, an, iti- an itinerant wanderer in Europe. Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> you worked on Once Upon a Time in the West, Kelly's Heroes, El Condor, well, no, no, A I Town was... Called Bastard, and Red Sun. Yes, Is but that not, not all within those three years. 
I think it was it was all within those three years. I'm sorry. A one spot time it in the West. Yes. What year one spot was a time that? in the in the West was 1968. Oh, Kel- okay. Kelly's Heroes was. 70. El Condor. No, 70. Kelly's Heroes was 1969. It came out in 70. So what? They shot it in 1969. Okay. okay. And then you know, it, it's weird when people say dates of movies. They're always like. When, when they it were came released. Out. When it came out, yeah. Yeah. But during that time, you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're meeting people that uh, you would go on a lot of these guys to work with. I sure. mean, you got um, Donald Sutherland, I worked, Don Rickles. I worked on a movie called Shadows Land. Uh, Michael Winter was the director. It was Charles Bronson. Actually, impressive cast. Really silly movie, but a Western. But the DP was Robert Painter, British DP, and... Michael Winter, he, he shot like 12 or 14 movies, 15 movies for Michael. Michael Winter was a famous character who could be extremely unpleasant to the crew. <laughs> I thought he was very funny. It was like Mr. Toad directing a movie. <laughs> he had a big cigar. What are you... Uh, d- this Randy is, Sifter. You know? We're talking about... Well, uh, because what I'm saying is the DP, Bob Painter. Uh-huh. So now I'm coming to England and uh, to make an American Werewolf in London... 1980. Mm-hmm. 80. 80. Well, 81. 81. It comes that out. was 1981. Yeah, yeah. So I, I need a British DP. I mean, had to be British crew. So I thought, I'll, I'll see if I'll call Bob. I mean, a lot of people I worked with in Europe, I worked with again and again. Right. And, 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 but they all knew me. It was funny. Why didn't you work, Even with, today, why didn't you work with Jack Elam? I mean, did you see the way he gives the finger in Cannonball Run? That guy is a that guy's <laughs> classic. Great he actor. Was funny. We, we have kind of an obsession with. We Cannonball do. Run. You know how he gives. Have you the ever finger seen like Support this? Your Local Sheriff? <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh, it's a James Garner comedy from the early seventies, right? From the I don't know seventies, but it's a shot in Hollywood. But Support Your Local Sheriff actually is pretty funny. Bruce Dern and Walter Brennan, but the and Jack Elam plays the the drunken deputy. What are you? And in- at the end of the movie. In support your local sheriff if you're a Jack Elam fan. At the end, he's, he's on the back of a train, and the train's moving away slowly at first and then goes fast, But so he goes away. But he starts off by saying, well, this is what happened to James Garner and to this guy and this character and this character and me. And he looks right in the camera as he's receding. He goes... I went to Spain and became a star in them there spaghetti westerns. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. So during this time, the three years, you, what are you picking up? You're, Mostly the trash. You know, so, no, I, I mean, was you had low to, level on No, this. but you're watching Sergio Leone work. You're watching Clint Eastwood work. Uh, you're watching Fernando Ray. To this day. Who, by the way, you and I both love Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. You're, Toshiro, that's Louis Bunuel that stars Fernando Ray. Right, right. Clint Toshiro Mifun kills you yeah. in a movie. To what, this day, if I see Clint Eastwood, which I do occasionally at functions and stuff, he'll say, John or Landis, get me some coffee or get me a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> do you do it for old time's sake? No. <laughs> <laughs> so... Okay, I'm going to just go down a list of names. Who kind of winds up having more of a profound impact on you, okay? Henry Fonda, Charles Bronson, Jason Robards, Don Rickles, Donald Sutherland, Lee Van Cleef, Martin Landau. Any of these people? Martin Landau? Yes. Well, he was he, in El Condor. He was in a town called Bastard. And he was in a town, but he was, wasn't he in El Condor? No. Uh, it's possible, but he was definitely in a town called Bastard. A town called Bastard. I so, uh, okay, so terrible. you spent... Th- are you... Are you? Okay, I became friends with Donald Sutherland, 
And he did me favor of being in Kentucky Fried Movie. For, and then you did him a favor of being an animal house. Well, he did me a favor of being an animal But ultimately, house. you did him a favor. <laughs> well, he still, he still, you know that story? He still, the studio was very upset with my cast because I cast mostly unknowns. And the only names were John Belushi, and he was television, and John Vernon, and he was, you know, on the downside of his career. Although I cast John Vernon because, have you ever seen Outlaw Josie Wales? Yes, great movie. Night, yeah, great movie. He's got this black beard and these blue eyes, and there's a, he's the bad guy, and he's one of the bad guys, and he's got a close-up where he says, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. And when I saw that, I went, Dean Wormer! Because, <laughs> you know, Wormer's tons of dialogue like, the time has come for someone to put their foot down, and, and that, that foot, foot is, is me. me right? <laughs> no more fun of any kind. Anyway, Don Rickles and Donald Sutherland, I had long relationships with. Right. And the story that I'm amazed you don't know about Animal House is the studio basically said, Karen Allen, Kevin Bake, who the fuck are these people? Tim Matheson, he was on uh, The Quest. What happened was the studio wouldn't give me a green light on Animal House, and we were in pre-production. We'd done all this work. We cast. We did everything. And I was told, you have no movie stars. We need a movie star. And this is 1977, 78. Mm -hmm. So the only movie star I really could ask, I thought, well, Donald did me the favor in Kentucky Fried, so <laughs> fuck it, I'll call him. It turned out he was going to shoot Invasion of the Body Snatchers for Phil Kaufman Love that in San movie. Francisco, and we were going to be north of that in Eugene, Oregon. So I said, Don, can't you carve out a day or something? And he said, John, I'm happy to do you a favor, but this is universal. You know, this isn't you guys. This is universal, so I got to get paid. So Universal offered him $35,000 for one for what's called a day plus one, meaning two days. <laughs> and uh, he said, no. So they said, okay, $35,000. And I think it was like 12 net points. And he said, no. So they ended up paying him, I think, fifty or $60,000 for a day plus one. And he said, yes. So he flew up, I had him two days, he flew up one day, and flew back to San Francisco, worked another week, and then flew up another day. And the genius of Doug Kenny, who was up there, I remember I said, you know. For those who don't know, Doug Kenny is a major player in the National Lampoon. And one of the, he was, he was a very important historic figure, and he, uh, he was one of the writers of Animal House, and he, two of the writers of Animal House, Chris Miller and Doug Kenny, were in Oregon with me. And it's a long story. Anyway, I said to Doug, I have Donald playing Jennings, the professor. And, you know, he ends up sleeping with Katie. So can you give me another scene, something I can shoot in half a day, you know, just really quick? <laughs> and he wrote, it's like the Gettysburg Address, on the back of an envelope, <laughs> he wrote the scene where he's teaching, when we first meet him, where he's teaching Milton. about Milton. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great It is a great, great, great scene. Yeah. Anyway, so I, Don flew up and did this. The movie comes out, he got his $60,000 or something. If he had taken the 35 and net points, there are no gross players on Animal House. He would have made at least 
17 million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> he talks still uh, he still talks about it. I love it. Hey lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family 3000 miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com/discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discography is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three times a week music deep dive experience. So do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot. Trust me, I'm working hard for the money, so hard for it, honey. There's the main show on Friday, a Monday wild card episode, which is either a soul-bearing interview with that week's special guest, or an offshoot show like Queasy Listening and Rock Cousteau. And then on Wednesdays, there's the humdinger of them all. Discography's The Private Press with Paul Major. You got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. So you're obviously planting seeds out there. You got a Rolodex. Uh, two quick questions before we hit schlock. Okay. So number one, did, uh, did Doug Kenny jump or did he fall? I don't know. Okay. I, um, I, there are a lot of interesting. What do you think? I think Kenny. he was doing a drug deal and he was probably murdered. Okay, pushed off. But, okay, but also, he could have jumped. He could have fell. You know that? Did you see the documentary about National Lampoon? Not documentary. I saw um, uh, the one where it's a reenactment and everything. No, that's a piece of shit. There's okay. a documentary about the National Lampoon, and when they did it, I said to the guy, "Listen, you know this is going to end up being a documentary about Doug Kenny." And it pretty much came up, but it's a great documentary. I'll and definitely everyone's watch that. I love. I, when I was a tiny, a little kid, way before I should have been reading that stuff, I was on the shit end of the stick uh, in terms of National Lampoon because it was like eighty four, eighty five, oh. and it was you know it was they were selling tits basically at yeah. that point. But as a thirteen year old, it felt vaguely countercultural to me. Uh, all right, so what is the transition then between you peripatetically wandering around Europe and then coming back and making schlock in 71? I was um, Brian Hutton, the director of Kelly's Heroes, who was very kind to me and pretty outrageous guy, but he was going to direct a movie called X, Y, and Z. And I think it was released as Z and Company. It was Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Caine, and Susanna York, I think. I know it was Elizabeth Taylor. But he was going to direct that in London, and he said, called me up, I was in Madrid, and he said, would you like to be my first AD? And I went, yes, you know, which is really not the best way to become a director, but for me, it was like, It's wow. a fucking thankless, horrible but job. It's, it's not a horrible job. It can be a very Stressful. creative, challenging job. And I'll tell you, you're a, a lightning rod, basically. A good, you're in charge. Yeah. The first AD runs the set, right? And uh, a good first is the difference between a yeah. movie that goes well or badly. It's so either, it seems like the kind of thing if you're really good at it, you get stuck doing it because yeah. you're, you're too you valuable. You get stuck doing it. It's a very honorable well, yeah, and people, important job. Yeah, people are just wanting to do that job. Yeah. Yes, yeah, very right. much. To and, me, those but, people are crazy. No, it's 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 a very creative and difficult job, and and when and a first can make a huge difference. They also are the ones who stage background action, and right. I mean they're very important in, in scheduling. And I mean I had on Animal House, 
it was interesting because I was able to get some people I wanted into unions and stuff. But the studio gave me a cameraman. The studio gave me a first AD. And I was very resentful. And it turned out that I was lucky to have the people they gave me, especially the first, whose name was Cliff Coleman, who was like six foot four shit kicker. I mean, a real uh, cowboy. (laughs) And this guy, I thought, oh, God, I hate him. And like the first couple of... The first week or so I worked with them, I really thought, Jesus Christ. But I, you know, I realized very quickly, this guy's saving me. <laughs> I mean, he really knew his job and really knew how to run a set. And uh, it, it really taught me a lot just how good he was and experienced because just little things like the parade sequence. Mm-hmm. Well, when we did the parade, one, it was very cold, but it's supposed to be spring, so that was one thing. But two, we shot it in Cottage Grove, which is a small town in Oregon. It's where Buster Keaton made The General. Mm-hmm. And later they made Stand By Me, and a lot of movies were made there eventually. But Cottage Grove is, I was so excited. We went to find the wrecked train. So we did a radio promotion, local radio promotion, to get extras, you know. We paid like 150 people, but I needed a thousand people at least to fit, you know, to really make. So we did this radio promotion. They had to be there like nine or something. And we had about 2,000 people. And so I start my, you know, go to my shot list. I start planning it. And Cliff looked at me and said, No, John, no, we're, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> I'm looking at him like, Fuck you. Like, what do you mean? He goes, Do every big shot you have. Every, even jump out of continuity, I don't care. Every big shot you have, because we're going to lose most of these people mm-hmm. very soon. And he was absolutely right, because as the, the minutes went on, the glamour <laughs> kind of <laughs> dissipated. But I was able to get my, I mean, like one of the last shots of the movie of Total Chaos was one of my first shots, you know. And Down the alley with Doug No, Kenny? no, that was easy. It was yeah, contained. Yeah. No, I mean yeah. the where you see everything yeah. a thousand people right, running right. around and there's the crane shot where you see the parade and i mean it was he really saved my ass because i would have had you know 200 people and i had thousands so i mean just all the time he he knew stuff you know like we'll shoot this first because look at the sun so getting back to schlock getting back to schlock. so what, what so what, what happened you, was I, well transition? i'll tell you i was offered to be the first mm-hmm. but I go to London. I'm very excited. I go out to El. It was uh, Shepherded. Go out to Shepherded. But it turned out to get a work permit, I had to be a member of the Directors Guild of America. So shit. So how do I do that? So I fly from London to L.A. and I go through this process. And basically, I couldn't get in i mean there was no way to get in until finally they were beginning this program called the dga trainee program where you train it's been going now for many years but it's you start off as a third and you work up to a second and then you you know but it's all these steps and everything and to get into that they had this affirmative action stuff going and so basically i could take a test and if i ace the test and I got a high grade more than the other people taking the test 
I they would allow me to go to London and be a first and then come back to LA and be a second. Which for me at the time was great. I was like 21 or something. I said, mm-hmm. great. You know, that's great. I'm happy to do it. Um, so I took the test, which I remember being so stupid. I remember multiple choice. A pan is a, a lateral camera move from right to left or left to right. B, a cooking utensil. <laughs> C, a bad review. You know, just like, what? <laughs> anyway, I took the test and I aced it. And, and the president of the guild at that time was Robert Aldrich. And the president emeritus was Mervyn Leroy. I'm so excited. I get back. You made the test. And so I called Brian and I'm starting to go to like, go back to London. Because I've been gone for three years, you know, and I'm anxious to get back. And then I get a call. Uh, Please come see Mr. Aldrich tomorrow. And I'm thinking, Robert Aldrich? Uh-oh. I mean, he's a famous hard ass. Um, he he made some great movies. The Dirty Dozen, mm-hmm. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Mm-hmm. He, he made a movie in Cottage Grove called Emperor of the North. Terrific movie. Yeah, with Ernest Borgnine. The, Lee Marvin. The, is that the, uh, that's the hobos, hobos. The Fighting Hobos? It's a great a film. Crazy and fucking Carradine. movie. Good movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Borg not scary in it. Anyway. There's some movies around that time that it's just like, yeah, I look so back violent. and I'm like, what? how the fuck did they make that? Night of the Lepus? No, that was a terrible But movie. I know, but it got made is what I'm saying. There's I love that movie. Crazy with the ja- shit. I, they're running, screaming, and you cut to rabbits. It's, ra- it's killer rabbits. <laughs> giant. To do, yeah, giant killer rabbits, <laughs> but they filmed them as their normal rabbits. They just kind of did they film them. They film them on miniature sets, but all they did was for, to make them. It's see, like the Incredible Shrinking Woman. They, they made rabbits. them. They made them. No, they were giant. You were supposed to direct Incredible they, Shrinking they made Woman. Them, yeah, they made them slow motion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's terrible. Anyway, it's laughable. You got sixty grand and you made so, a movie. So How did you me, get so the what ha- grand? Well, let me finish. What happened was I go to see Mr. Aldrich. And I'm very intimidated. But he turned out to be very nice. And he had the most extraordinary eyebrows. They were like Mephistophelian. (laughs) There's a gag in a Jerry Lewis movie called The Errand Boy. When the boss of the mailroom is screaming in Jerry's face. And Jerry turns and looks at the camera. And his eyebrows are like this. Against his forehead. He had these incredible eyebrows. Anyway. And he informs me, regretfully and embarrassed, but, and Mervyn Leroy sitting on a couch. I'm like, oh my God, Wizard of Oz, Mervyn Leroy. Anyway, um, Little Caesar, you know, I'm like, wow. <laughs> they tell me, you are a high school dropout. Yes. You don't have a high school diploma. No. You know, to qualify to take the test, you have to have a BA. You had to settle to be a filmmaker? <laughs> And I and they were embarrassed, but I didn't qualify to take the test. Didn't matter how I did. Well, imagine my I was furious. I was furious. And I come out and my friend Jim O'Rourke, James Cornelius Patrick O'Rourke, who became the producer of Schlock and who I met in Europe, he was a college football guy. Whenever we needed money, he'd seduce some rich woman. (laughs) He really was a gigolo. Anyway, uh, I've come out of the DGA building and he said, come on, let's go to a movie. And we go to Hollywood Boulevard, see some triple feature, and we saw Trog, Mm -hmm. the Joan Crawford movie, Freddie Francis, which is one of the great 
terrible, terrible. <laughs> uh, like I said, they were just making great shit. Well, back then. they still do make terrible movies. Anyway, it was Trog is appalling, and I was so angry at the time. I said, I could do that. I fuck them. I'll be, I'll direct my own fucking movie. And I went home and wrote Schlock, which is very inspired by Trog and. Jim said, we could make this, so let's make this. So I had, from my savings, about 30000 bucks, And he matched it? I, no. <laughs> but we raised, he put in 5000 bucks, and then I got the rest of the money from my family. My uncle gave me $10,000. You know, we raised $60,000. How much? At the time, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no, to make a feature film? Not, well, well, I mean, to make a. Uh, we shot 35 millimeter. My, and, fir- oh. my first feature was The Homeboy. Shot on 35 millimeter for $55,000. So you can do it. I mean, I did it on a 13-day schedule. How long was 12. 12. But regardless, it was no money. You met Rick Rick Baker. That's right. I met Rick How the Baker. fuck did you meet that guy? Well, I needed a... It was written to be a bad gorilla suit. It was supposed to be schlocky, you know. And Instead, you got the greatest gorilla suit of all time. No, but was, I did at the get time, a good at one. At the time, it was... I don't know. I got a great one, but... Yeah. but what I—it's not a gorilla, but what I—what I—I first went to John Chambers, who was a makeup artist famous for doing the Planet of the Apes movies. I knew John from when I was a mailboy at Fox. I knew all these makeup guys. I used to go hang out in there. Um, they made Beneath the Planet of the Apes. You were in it, or you were no, in battle? No, I'm in battle. battle yeah. Last. <laughs> anyway, um, John said I could do that, but it'd be expensive. And I said, well, "How much money?" He said, "Well, I'll—I'll I'll do a deal for you." Yeah, $200,000. <laughs> I went, uh, no. So he suggested I go to Don Post Studios in Burbank. Don used to make those rubber full head masks of, mm-hmm. that were sold in the back pages of, of yeah. famous mm-hmm. monsters and stuff. He's, he's like a consumer level Dick Smith. Oh, far more commercial than that yeah, yeah, also yeah. he was pretty successful Don Post and he yeah. made Gorilla so he made all kinds of stuff so I go to him and he said 150000 but he was doing me a favor by the way they were right they were and I couldn't like no thank you and as I was leaving Don Post Jr. was painting a mask and he turned to me he said you know there was a kid in here and he goes to find it he brings me a card it says Rick Baker Monster Maker and it has his mother's phone number, an address in Covina, where he was living. And I was 20, and Rick was, no, I was 21, sorry. I was 21, and Rick was 20, and uh, or 19. In any case, he was still living at home. And he, was, I, he was baking all the stuff in his mom's oven, wasn't he? Yeah, in fact, all the molds for Schlock had to be able to fit in his mom's oven. And she complained, <laughs> lovely woman, she complained for years that her pie smelled like foam bread. <laughs> but, Lucky her. But anyway, but so... Did he have a mullet back then, or is it just... He that? had very long hair then. Yeah, yeah. He so never had is, a mullet. So, so, okay, a couple questions. Number one, is Schlock a good movie? No. Okay. Number two... Uh, objectively, my idea for Schlock 2, with you having uh, the ape kept in a cage in your basement and it gets out and you're running all over Hollywood trying to track down the ape and get it back in your in your basement, is genius. And then one day we'll revisit it. And is genius? Geniuses in quotes. Who said that? Objectively, me. I, I said it. 
objectively meaning. He said it. Then he, he said it. Then quoted himself saying, <laughs> you, mean, yeah. "You mean objectively meaning objective?" Remember, I was pitching you a ton of. It's a terrible idea. It's a great idea okay. because you need to circle back around. I to want what, you to include this in the program so people <laughs> lose all respect for his opinion. <laughs> they they lost respect the second I opened my mouth during episode one. So what people don't realize. Correct me if I'm wrong here about your career, is that you made Schlock in '71, and your appearance on the Carson Show is really what unleashed it. Did Johnny is Johnny Carson responsible for your career? No, <laughs> no. But I mean, Schlock would have remained unreleased. No, no, it would have been released. How it's does just... a, How does a kid who makes a, a small movie? It was different. First of all, it was a different time. Sure. And there was... You're a little <clears throat> kid. Look, I saw a picture of you. You look like a baby. You had a turtleneck. You oh, you mean like, on Carson? You look 15. You don't look... Uh, you look young. <clears throat> I had to lie when I was on Johnny Carson because I, the movie was finished in 71. We finally got a distributor in 73. And so... When Are you Carson, freaking out for two when, years? When Carson... Oh, yeah. I still lost money. Anyway, when Carson booked me i was booked as a 21 year old filmmaker so i had to lie and say i was 21 even though i was 23, 23. <laughs> but uh, he was very nice in fact uh, carson it, it, schlock is the only movie he ever gave permission for a quote so on all the advertising it said really wild really funny johnny carson that's really cool. All right, that about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer, Todd Zimmer, my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Joe Kennedy, the mythological mensch himself, John Landis, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you. But wait just a minute. This is just the entrance to the rabbit hole. No need to stop now, because we're on a roll. Join us as we descend down, down, down on this filmic, week-long deep dive. Another way to dive even deeper is to get thee directly to either Alan Arkish episode, wherein the director of Rock and Roll High School and The Temptations talks about his top ten albums of all time and waxes psychedelic about his time working for Bill Graham at the Fillmore East in an episode entitled Fillmore Feast. And don't forget, there are five upcoming episodes of the John Landis tapes. That's a whole lot of movies to go. Of course, if you're subscribing to our Patreon, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday continues the film deep dive with our Patreon-only wildcard episode, 10 Minutes of Landis, where the only outtake assemblage of the John Landis material is poured directly into your ear holes, including one massive foot-and-mouth faux pas on my part. Not to mention Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discography the private press with Paul Major, wherein we'll be covering Palmer Rocky's movie album, the self-produced soundtrack to a now-lost movie that wraps up the dive in predictably what-the-fuck style. That's patreon.com slash discograffiti. This is an entirely listener-supported show, and I offer a full no-questions-asked money-back guarantee. So if you dug this episode, you don't have an excuse. Check it out right this second. Thank you so much in advance. And be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, March 31st, we're coming at you with part one of an interview with the great Sergio Diaz from Os Mutantes. And so... 
from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Graffiti.